You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. The Boss Hog of Liberty podcast is the latest hit on the We Are Libertarians network. Each week, Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis explore life in Henry County, Indiana. It's a show about our circle of friends, public officials, and our experiences. 80% observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Oh, f- the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week, we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up for the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and subscribe on Patreon at wearelibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of bonus content and free stuff. You get all kinds of... Sometimes it's three, four hours of extra content a week. So in that private RSS feed. And then we want you to join our community as well. Join our Facebook group and our Discord channel at wearelibertarians.com. Please be warned that this show is raw, unedited, authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. I apologize for that bump that was Mittens. She is uh, is cuddling. She's been very, very cuddly this particular week. I don't know what's going on. Now with me this uh, this evening is Joe Houtman. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. You're gonna have to like lean forward. Yep, you, or you can pull that out as far as you you can. But uh, got to talk right into it. Now Joe is uh, an old friend, and I mean that in two ways. <laughs> now uh, Joe, I've known for pr- almost. Almost, almost a decade now, and Joe has been a member of the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian Movement for a very long time. Uh, how long have you been involved? Well, I've been involved in the Libertarian Movement since 72 and the Libertarian Party since 79. Okay. So you've been around. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
And uh, I, Joe, you're running. I'll I'll say this. This is not. We're not doing an interview based on this because we're going to talk about some current events first. But we'll get to the Libertarian Party stuff. But you are running for vice chair, right? At the moment, there are seven of us running, so it's going to be a long convention. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, spurned on by Arvin Vora, right. who we who we've discussed on the program before, and we'll talk some LP stuff uh, after we talk a little bit uh, of culture because here's one of the reasons i wanted to have you on now joe is one of the few baby boomers that i like uh (laughs) i i i don't dislike baby boomers there's you there's phyllis klasinski there's my parents hmm no that's it i'm I'm just kidding i'm just kidding no i always like to tease baby boomers which you you don't care for i i could live with it after all all, we're the ones who came up with the term don't trust anyone over 30 (laughs) so we just live too long right (laughs) Uh, and part of the reason that I just don't care for boomers is that a lot of stuff has really gone wrong the last 20, 30 years uh, in culture, in politics, in every area of society. And you guys have been in charge. Well, so please answer for your crimes. Fine. All I can say is we had the same complaints about the generations before us, and I'm sad that I won't be around to watch you hear the same complaints about you. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so Joe is uh, somebody that I think has a really interesting take on. Uh, he's somebody. He's one of the few people that I know that have been politically active for forty years. Uh, yeah, about forty. I mean, you you see a lot of people who are older who are in politics, but they may have gotten involved ten years ago or five years ago, or they just kind of have voted. Joe's been in the trenches for a very long time, uh, and in the libertarian movement for a very long time, and so that that gives him a unique perspective. Uh, on what's going on in the party, in the movement, and then within politics in general. Um, so let's talk about your background a little bit, just so people get familiar with, with you and what you've been up to. So how did you get involved in politics? Well, I came from a political family. Um, on my uh, mother's side, my great uncle was the undersecretary of communications in Hungary during World War II. Wow. So he wasn't a fascist, but he was, let's say, not overly bothered by them. Right. On my dad's side, my grandfather was a socialist labor organizer in Germany who, according to family folklore, heard Hitler speaking in the 20s and basically said, this is not the country I want to hang out in. Wow. And so we came over in 1928 on the Red Star Line, and uh, we... We were illegal immigrants because in those times they were not allowing in skilled tradesmen, and my grandfather was a master file cutter. So we came over as farmers. So <laughs> let's not let in skilled people. That's odd. That just happened to be the current feeling at the time. They didn't, didn't want the skilled jobs taken by foreigners. Yeah, sounds oddly familiar. Uh, so uh, you you got involved. Did you get right? Were you a libertarian from birth? I mean, no, no, what, no. What no. was your? I started out as a conservative uh, Republican. Um, in fact, I'm one of the few people I know who had an FBI file by the time he was 16. Really? Yeah, I knew this because when I went to college, I got an open letter from J. Edgar Hoover warning me away from surf- certain groups. And the only other person I ever met who got that letter was another right-wing activist hmm. at the time. Um, no, I was head of uh, a Republican group in high school. I was head of uh, college Republicans at Michigan State. I actually went to New Hampshire to campaign against Nixon for Ashbrook. Mm-hmm. In, in the, 68? Uh, no, that would have been 72. Seven, okay. 72. 72. 
and I um, also ran as a Republican in uh, 74 at uh, Michigan State University and was the highest vote-getter on campus for a Republican. In those days, campuses were Democrats. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot has changed apparently in the, in the last forty years. So, so you get, you decide to become a Libertarian Party person? Why? Because I found out the Republicans just played lip service, even in those days, to uh, the idea of freedom. They were all for freedom for themselves, but not for anyone else. So, were you more of a Goldwater Republican? Right. I I was a Goldwater type Republican. Uh, in fact, one of the disappointments I had is one of my local friends when I was a, became a teacher later in life um, served on the county board in Boone County as a Republican. Mm-hmm. And I went with him to the Lincoln Day dinner and I looked around and there were no Goldwater Republicans left. Right. It was basically two gangs get fighting over who gets to split the loot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so so similar to a lot of the Ron Paul movement. I mean, it's it's analogous to the Ron Paul movement now. You know, it's your country club, your Romney Republicans versus your Trump Republicans. Yeah, actually, I think it's going to be interesting to watch what happens to the Romney Republicans, the uh, Luger Republicans, mm-hmm. the good government Republicans. Right. Uh, yeah, by our definition, they were really statists. But when they got a choice of looking at who they have to work with now, it'll be interesting to see how much they can stomach. Yeah, yeah. So, so you 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 flipped. You went to the Libertarian Party. Yeah, I went to the. Um, actually, I became found out about libertarianism in college. Uh, at that time, the term was not well known. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my neighbors introduced me to someone else in married housing uh, because they thought it'd be so much fun to watch us fight. Um, at the time, I was ROTC Rangers, which is hard to believe looking at me now. Um, ROTC Rangers, president of college Republicans. The guy two doors down was a McCarthy Democrat whose dad was president of the Plumbers Union. Mm-hmm. So she thought this would be just hilarious. Well, it turns out I was a libertarian coming from the right. He was a libertarian coming from the left. His name was Steve Dasbach. Mm-hmm. Uh, he later went on to become one of the state chairs in Indiana national vice chair, national chair, national executive director. Um, and so I I learned about it just from a friend, and then I took a course at college. At those times, they couldn't even label it libertarian. It was selected aspects of political thought, mm. uh, an independence. Which is what we do. We select certain aspects of political thought, and then 99% we say we don't like that. Well, the interesting thing is we spent the first uh, semester building up the libertarian issues, and then we spent the second semester looking at the holes in the libertarian philosophy. Right. And we came to the conclusion it does have holes in it, but compared to the other philosophies, ours are pinpricks and the others you could drop battleships through. That's really kind of where I've come down over the last decade is that there, there's certain aspects of libertarianism. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, I want to be an anarchist. I want to be an anarcho-capitalist because I do believe that, you know, in a utopian society that would be ideal. But I also, you know, live in reality. <laughs> well, uh, a good book if you want a, a, I consider, realistic approach to anarcho-capitalism would be David Friedman's Machinery of Freedom. Mm-hmm. David Friedman is the son of Milton Friedman. right. And he ended his book by saying, can we get there? He says, I don't know. 
I like to think so. But if we can't, I'd still rather pay my uh, taxes to Washington than Moscow because the rates are lower. Sure. Well, and I... That's a good line. And I think that in the age of the internet, in, in you know, we're just a bit at the beginning of that. I certainly think technology could liberate us and, and take us to a place where it is possible to have a post-government society. I don't, I don't anticipate that it'll happen in my lifetime, though. The only problem I have with that approach, um, uh, Alex, I think Meltz is, Mertz is his name. He's one of the other candidates. Oh, Alex Merced. Merced, yeah. thank you. You can know you know how bad I am with names. Yeah, no, yeah. Okay, Alex Merced uh, made that point, and I understand where he's coming from, but you know, you just can't slip into cyberspace when they're using a battering ram on your door. Mm-hmm. Right. And unfortunately, my background, only being second generation from Europe, um, that's the part that scares me. Yeah, let's. I'm I'm having some trouble. <laughs> I'm having. Um... I sat at Steak and Shake for about an hour before this podcast writing something out because I was really disturbed by the town hall that CNN had last night. And it it was like two minutes hate. It was like watching 1984. I don't know if you saw it or saw clips. No. no. Okay. But you've been on the internet in the last week, so you yeah. kind of understand what the, what the climate is out there, what it's like out there. And... The you, you have it, it, it really is like there are aspects of that town hall that are just so close to 1984 that it scares me where you have, you know, these students who are just pure emotional figures because you've taught students. Oh, yeah. You know, and you know that a 16, 17 year old, they're not going to have the ins and outs of gun policy nailed down like. A Dana Lash or, you know, who Bill Nelson or the senator like and they elevated these teenagers who are just emotional messes to begin with. Then you put them in the middle of the worst trauma of their life and then put them on camera. And I can tell you, having worked in the public eye for 15 years in politics and media, you don't want to be hurting and in a traumatic state and in the public eye. Because every little criticism stings. And, uh, you know, going through my divorce, I said and did a lot of stuff on this podcast that I was not proud of because everything was operating from that trauma Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I was going through at that time. So I really have to look at this and go, I understand this. Little old dumb me understands it's not healthy for these kids to open them up to a world where they're going to be these political footballs and get death threats and go through all that extra additional trauma. And I understand that they kind of want to do this, but it really is kind of a a gross choice for activists on the left and for producers at CNN to kind of promote this because I feel for the kids because I think they're going to look back and kind of go, I wish I hadn't done that. But furthermore, it is the fact that they are this traumatic football that you can't criticize and they're not making points from a place of reason. They're making it from a, an emotional point. And you watch this one part. Just look up the part about the kid who asks Marco Rubio about his donated donations from uh, the NRA. Will he take more donations? And it's just four minutes of this kid screaming in the senator's face. You know, CNN has put them on the same moral platform, you know, elevated them to the same place. And then there is a an arena of people 
screaming on the kid's behalf at him. And it was really a terrifying moment because it, it's it's just democracy illustrated. You're watching just this, like, we, we've gotten to a point where we're not even in the same reality, let alone talking, you know, he he is being blamed and this senator who had nothing to do with the shooting is being uh, blamed. One one girl was basically saying, you know, it's no, it was a boy. He said, I, it's hard to look at you and not see the barrel of an AR-15. Like, you're the one that killed my friends. That's a really emotionally charged, bizarre scene. Well, it's... And it's, how did we get to this place? It's not that unusual. Uh, it's the need to blame something controllable. Okay. Okay, it's really no different, in my mind, from the people who are posting that none of this is real, it's all actors... Okay. Yeah, the crisis people are nuts. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it both comes to the fact randomness is one of the scariest things in the world to people. Mm -hmm. Okay, the realization that no matter what you do, no matter what you plan, something can just randomly take you out or totally change your life with no warning whatsoever is terrifying on a very fun, primitive level to every human being. Right. And that's what these kids are dealing with. You know, all of the arguments that we can make against this, the fact that that's the most popular gun in the country, the fact that we've had, the gun's been around for 40 years. You know, I'm old enough. I was in ROTC when they first introduced the M16 into the Army. We thought it was a toy. It was so much lighter mm-hmm. and easier to, fire, easier to fire than what we had before. We couldn't believe it was a real weapon. It, it's sort of like, how can we defend ourselves with this? It felt like it was made by Mattel. Right. Um, so we didn't have all these mass shootings for years and years. So the idea that it's the gun is irrational. But it doesn't matter. The kid is hurting. Obviously, he's hurting. He's, he saw those guns. He saw people die. And so to him, he has to blame something. He has to blame something, and it's so easy to blame the gun. Right. And emotionally, I understand it. I mean, a lot of people vote simply, you know, why are you voting for that person? Well, we got to do something. But that's not rational. It doesn't matter. we got to do something. And I don't fault the high schoolers. I mean, as I said, I don't know if I mentioned that you were a high school teacher for 20 years. 23 years. 23 years. You know, so you understand their state. You, you know, I was 16 once. I was I was not a troubled kid, but I certainly was an emotionally unstable kid, not in a violent way, but just in a you know dealing with a lot of fallout from family stuff. And I understand uh, being a mouthy. I was on the newspaper. I wrote you know Spangles Angle. I wrote a column one year, and I look back and I just see very naive points but I wanted to change the world I wanted to make a difference I get what these kids are doing and and they're taking advantage of the opportunity that they see what I have a hard time reconciling is is CNN using them as props using them as uh, they're pushing this narrative they're pushing a narrative they're choosing to put these kids in a position that is unhealthy for them and so are many people on the left that's the part that's troubling to me that we have so many people who are willing to use children who are in the midst of trauma to make a political point 
and the point is that because you disagree with me, you are an evil human being. That is the part. It's not even we disagree and you're wrong. It's you are morally complicit in the deaths of other human beings, even though you didn't perpetrate it. Have you experienced over the last 40, 50 years an environment like that where the argument is literally just so it's it's like if you're on the gun uh, right side, it feels like violence towards you. Sure. Um, the Vietnam era. This is very similar to that. You know, I was in ROTC at the time of Cambodia. You know, we were walking around campus and they were calling us, you know, you're baby killers, you know, and I mean, what can you do? You either ignore it or you laugh and say, yep, and we eat them for breakfast. Yep, yep, yep. Um, that's just, yeah. The, you, If you look at your enemy as an opponent, it limits what you do. Mm-hmm. It makes you behave in a civilized manner. That's why I'm approaching, for instance, in my race. The other six candidates are my opponents. They're not my enemy. Okay, five, uh, Six out of the seven of us are going to be disappointed. Right. So there's no reason for us all to hate each other. Um, and the other problem is I've met people on the other side of moral issues that I had every reason to hate. And the worst thing is, is once I got to know them, they weren't that bad of people. Okay, and that, that's the way it is th- from the left's point of view, which I don't agree with. I've often joked that uh, I'm a strong Second Amendment person, although I'm not a gun owner. I've always said when they come for your guns, if they do, I will stand with you, but I'll have to borrow a gun. <laughs> um, right. You know, from their point of view, this is important. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to make that the case. And if you look at, for instance, the way the immigrant is being demonized, okay? The media. by the Not only by the media, but I mean, also by I mean, the right. I'm saying the right, you know, they have their own scapegoats in the mainstream media. Exactly. And, and, and their own martyrs. Right. And their own martyrs. You know, you, the mother whose child was killed by an illegal immigrant. Yes, that's tragic. Now, the statistics say you're more likely to have been killed by a Native American. Okay, but that doesn't matter. There's a woman, she's hurting, she's in pain, you can sympathize with her. Trump puts her on, takes her to the uh, State of the Union address. Right. It's exactly the same thing as what CNN's doing. It's disgusting in both sides. So I'm reading this book called The Storm Before the Storm, and it's uh, by Mike Duncan, who does the History of Rome podcast, and he talks about the end of the Roman Republic. How, how, what were the 150 years that led up to Caesar? Right. Uh, it's very interesting. And he talks about the end of most maiorium, basically the end of cultural, political norms, that you have all these, these structural linchpins that kept society and Rome together for hundreds of years. And then you have Tiberius Gracchus come along and use populism to unmoor Roman politics from those, that, those norms. And he basically promises free land in Lex Agrarian to, uh, to, to people, and he breaks the system. He breaks that culture of norms. And the reaction from the other side, first they kill him and 300 other people. <laughs> and that is really when the, the violence was introduced into Roman politics that led to, the, to Caesar 100 years later. But it was it allowed the other side to start breaking norms too, right? And I look at Donald Trump and I go, "Here's he's 
I've been warning on the show for years now that a person who will do anything to win, including break political norms, is a very dangerous person because you don't know where that ends up. Mm -hmm. You don't know where that goes. And so much of what the left is doing, they've been given permission to start breaking those norms because the right gave them permission to do it first and both sides are doing it and you it just feels like things are kind of out of control and having lived through Nixon you know the late 60s the early 70s i imagine it probably felt that same way then too i would say actually it feels in what some ways worse now okay okay um most of the norms that were broken in the 60s most Americans looking back would say we're better off for it. Um, I would say, for instance, racism is an example. I grew up in the super segregated suburbs of the North, okay, which are far more segregated than the South was. I right. mean, there may have been inequality in the South, but at least you saw each other. Right. I never talked to a black person until I was in high school. Um. And it's just, that's the way it was. So we had no idea what their life was like. And when you only had three news channels and PBS, then the result was whatever was fed to you was the reality. And it wasn't until the riots and that we began to understand what was going on, both in the South and in the North. Um, I grew up, I went to high school in Dearborn, Michigan, which... My apologies. Well, no, it was interesting. <laughs> you have to understand, you're talking um, a city now, okay, is very different than the Dearborn I grew up in. Right. The Dearborn I grew up in was run by the same, basically, Democrat, right-wing Democrat mayor um, for over 40 years. There was a time when our city council was run from a trailer in Canada to avoid federal indictments, a federal <laughs> grand jury. Right. Um and yet, his entire campaign was, you like Dearborn clean? You want to keep it that way? Vote for me. And in his last election, after having had a stroke, he still pulled over 80% of the vote, hmm. carrying every precinct in the city. That is the kind of world that we were brought into as teenagers. We didn't know what it was like. To, for those of us who were straight white males, quite frankly, it was the golden age. Sure. Okay, we didn't know it at the time, and I always find it hilarious that that's when the LP was started by straight white males. <laughs> right. You know, and now 40 years later, you know, our only complaint is basically everyone else is being treated the way we used to treat blacks. Right. Um, and so the, that's one of the main things, really, that was broken in the, that era the idea that whatever the government told you was true, okay, that we found out was wrong. The idea that um, blacks were not being treated the same way we were and just were staying separate because birds of a feather flocked together. Right. That's, that's what my generation was brought up on. We didn't know that until we were, had it rubbed in our faces that that was the case. Now what's breaking apart is, I suppose in one sense again, we have no shared reality, okay, just as my view of reality was broken apart, but there doesn't seem to be a new reality that we're all agreeing on. 
And that's you, you, that's the dangerous part. You watch that town hall, and sometimes I watch CNN, and I go, I don't know what world they're living in. Uh, and then sometimes I turn on Fox News, and I go, I don't know what world these people are living in. <laughs> you know, like it's everybody's kind of creating their own little realities. I guess it's a postmodernist dream, but you know, you watch that town hall last night, and it Dana Lash presents facts about guns and mental health and they don't even listen to her it's it's just like because you're on the other side i'm right. going to yell at you i'm not going to listen to, like you watch that hour and a half and nobody is talking to each other it's literally just i'm going to yell at you and be as violent towards you as possible without touching you to get you to submit and that's sort of where it feels like we're at with the public yeah, dialogue. It, it, it really has. And that has been a, has slowly been growing. I mean, actually, pretty much since the Nixon era. Um, the idea that you demonize your opponent, politics is no longer about trying to pull the middle towards you. It's about demoralizing the middle and your opponent and getting the blood flowing on your own side. So Right. Mobilize your people and... De- and- Suppress the vote of the other side. Absolutely. Suppre- basically, knock the will out of them Right. to fight. That's why we can have mayor races in uh, Indiana where 18% of the voters show up yeah. and select a mayor. Why? Because everyone else says, what's it matter anymore? Okay? That's what politics has become. You basically discourage your opponent to the point that they don't think it's important anymore. Right. Um. And unfortunately, both sides are doing it. That's why I think, quite frankly, libertarians, as um, Weld said, our our road to victory is a five-lane uh, highway right up the center. Yeah. Let's talk about libertarians, because I find them to be the most disagreeable. <laughs> you know, you, we have this amazing opportunity to present solutions, to present uh, r- rational common sense. You know, I think I see people on my Facebook of all sides and just, you know, people that I went to high school with and uh, they go, yeah, you make sense. But then I don't want to invite them to a libertarian county meeting. I mean, Marion County is different, but you don't know what it's like in their area because it it could be like the dog kennel that Judd Weiss talked about in his interview with Lions of Liberty, where he basically said, the LP's a dog kennel. You have this cute, adorable little puppy, and then you just put it into the dog kennel, and then the wolves that are in there <laughs> rip it apart. And uh, you, you, the world has infected the libertarian movement. I mean, I guess it's always kind of been this way between Cato and, and Rothbard, but you look at like the convention thing with the Ron Paul stuff. There was an intentional uh, misdirection yes. that took place against Daniel Hayes and yes. Nick Sarwark and the National Committee. Yes, I don't. I don't think that uh, if I don't think that they necessarily were forthright in saying no, we don't want Ron Paul to speak. But it was, if you read between the lines of what Daniel said on this show, what Sarwark had previously said. They weren't looking for Ron Paul to speak, which I get because Ron Paul spent 20 years, basically the last decade, especially trashing the LP right. for a lot of good reasons. But what was done to Daniel Hayes was it, it was intentional. Yes. It was an intentional lie by one caucus to 
demoralize the other right. side, to demonize the other side. And it was really a disgraceful display. And it was one of the and, and people like me who go, I'm a responsible adult and I don't have time to deal with all these people crying on Facebook Live and refuting lies. And it's like, I just, I want to, you know, the, the poly, body politic is chaotic enough without contributing money to a group that is just as chaotic and plays the same games. Well, what I would argue is, I understand, okay, although it's, I would say it is less nuanced than it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, things have become cruder, but our whole society has become cruder. Um, you know, you don't have to call, tell someone what they're saying is bullshit. You can just say it's bovine excrement. Right. Okay, there are ways to say things that are not so bad. And kids and the politicians, in fact, all of us, have, really have gotten cruder recently. And that's bad. There's a reason for civility. Um Civility lets you work with people you don't necessarily like. Um, if you think, if you re- read old novels or read history, the whole purpose for manners was to keep you from getting up, getting into a uh, duel. Right. You know, you use certain words that may not have implied you like them, but you were giving them respect and you could disagree. Well, you had for most of human history a very violent society. You know, you had had the uh the Mongols for instance who would who ruled from Europe to China at one point and basically would go into a town whoever they didn't kill would pile into a pit, build a a deck on top of the people and have lunch on top of them and crush them to death. I mean, that was like that was tw- that was twelve hundred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not that long ago in terms of human history, and you had very violent impulses where society was much more violent. It wasn't, and you've seen if you followed Stephen Pinker's career and and looked at some of the things that he's written about the, the better angels of our nature, where he basically lays out why are we becoming better? Why are we why are we less violent? Why are more why are less people being raped? Why are more less murders being committed why are less people being stolen from what's happening and he tries to wrestle with that uh and that's one of the ironies of the gun debate is as since 2006 when the ar was allowed to be you know produced in the way that it's produced now i think it was yeah it was 2006 might have been it was actually produced before that and then went out of production because of clinton and then it was brought back but you know, there's been 15 million of them sold since then. Right. And so you've had more guns at, at an ever-increasing rate going into the population, and yet crime and gun deaths are rapidly falling. That's the idea of the gentle man, is that you're controlling right. your, your lesser nature. Right. And the, even the idea of the rational man um, is a very new concept. When you, when you think with your emotions, you're thinking about the way, basically, we made decisions through most of human history. The idea of the rational discussion is relatively new. Um, and so it's not surprising that in times of stress, the logic tends to go out the window and the emotions are what come back to the surface. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I've noticed lately... You know, I got divorced in 2014, 
and basically had been operating for most of my life, <laughs> as I found out in therapy, that I was operating from this base nature. I was My thoughts were automatic. I was just going along with whatever the automatic thought was. And over the last year, the reason my life is so much better is that I'm able to stop, step back, examine the thoughts, examine the behavior, and go, don't do that. And that's higher thought to me. Like, I'm really proud of myself because I've been able to do that. I have more self-esteem because of it. And, you know, now I'm trying to apply that to my political discourse in this podcast, too, where I have to go, all right, stop. What are you putting out into the world? What, do you, what is the point you're trying to make? What are you just pumping garbage? <laughs> you know, because you can make if you if you want to be Tommy Lauren and just pump garbage, you can make a lot of money. Oh yeah. But if you want to try and and do something different and and step back and go uh and I think there's an audience for that. That's why, you know, Ben Shapiro gets half a million listens a day is because he he tries to apply logic and higher thought to the politics of the day, which seems to be so ruled by our base nature. And it grieves me when I see something like the Ron Paul stuff where people are just sharing this article from a very unreputable site in Liberty Hangout saying they didn't invite Ron Paul. They never people didn't even click and read the link. What one of the problems is we've all Facebook and all of this has gotten us all to spend much more time in our own echo chambers. Right. Where we only listen to people who think like we do and um, only look at sites that reinforce what we believe. And so what happens is when you get to a town hall like that, um, you're used to only hearing one side. Right. And suddenly you've got somebody up there giving you another side, and they just totally don't fit into your your matrix. Not, not at all. Which is... You know, the old saying, uh, don't talk about politics and religion. It's like, well, we've lost the ability to talk about politics and religion. And I would argue, let's talk about Arvin. <laughs> I'm sure he's a motivating factor in why you're running. Arvin Vora is the national vice chair. And Arvin is... Arvin, Arvin has... Let me say this. Arvin has done good things as vice chair in terms of getting the social media and the communication sections of the Libertarian Party vibrant, okay? Mm -hmm. he He's the one who really did a good job in getting it to go that way. But Arvin also is somebody who believes that if you just shove a hot, flaming pile of liberty right in somebody's eye, then that will wake them up and they'll go, oh, you know, and so he... If you're not familiar, Arvin has shared several different statuses, you know, on Veterans Day, basically, you know, saying, good job you tried, provoking veterans, provoking teachers. Uh, he's he's provocative. And I would argue that Arvin's kind of doing what you were saying, is that he spends so much time in his own echo chamber that he, he doesn't realize, he doesn't understand how to talk to voters. I'm not, I actually believed that at the beginning. And I, having now been in two debates or forums with him, I'm not sure he doesn't. He has a fundamental disagreement as to how to reach the voter mm -hmm. and as to who we are trying to reach. Okay. Um, the analogy I use, I was originally told to me as a, as a train, but I prefer the, the bus. If you think of the country as a bus, right now it's being driven by the duopoly. And they're fighting over whether or not to 
travel the speed limit, which is the Republicans, or put the gas to it. And we're heading towards the Atlantic Ocean, which is authoritarianism, totalitarianism. Um, and we're at the Appalachian Mountains. Right. And they control the bus, and the people up around them are kind of happy. It's a nice tour, and they're not thinking too much about where it's going to end. They're just enjoying the scenery. And we want to turn the bus around. Now, most libertari- the libertarians want to take it to Sacramento or San Francisco. Um, I told the anarchists they wanted to take it to San Francisco. Since I'm not an anarchist, I think the anarchists actually want to take, drive the bus to Hawaii. But <laughs> it's the same idea. Right. People like Arvin really believe that the only way to turn the bus around is to convince everyone that they have to go at least to Sacramento. That unless you are willing to go to Sacramento, or unless you understand that's our goal, then you shouldn't be helping us try to turn the bus around. Okay? I'm the other extreme. And I, I the panel I was just on made it pretty clear to me. I'm the militant moderate. I believe that unless you are happy with the size and scope of government now, or you want to make it bigger, that you belong in the Libertarian Party. And that we should be all working together to get control of that wheel, turn it around, and head the other direction. And I don't care if you only want to go from the Appalachian Mountains to Columbus, Ohio. Okay, I don't care if you only want to go to Indianapolis. At this point in time, while we are in the Appalachian Mountains, heading east, as long as you want to go west, I think you should be welcome in the Libertarian Party. That's a different way of trying to reach the voter than Arvin, who believes that we have to convince you that it's important to get to Sacramento before we try to take control of the bus. So how do you reach the voter? I mean, we, we said, you know, 18% voting in elections here in Indiana, which is a very, you know, it's a lot of civic pride here. I mean, how do you how do you reach the voter if you're in a third party? You have to convince them that they can bring about you can bring about the change. I per, having worked on the Johnson campaign, although he had problems as a candidate, I can only tell you of the people we had running, he was the best. And quite frankly, anyone who's upset about Aleppo and is happy with Trump, I do not understand them. Um <laughs> People like Arvin think that Trump won because of the way Trump behaved. I personally think that Trump won because of Hillary. Yeah. You know, it's not that Trump won, it's that Hillary lost. Right. You know, I knew libertarians at the Cato Institute who voted for Trump saying, I know the chances of Trump giving me what I want is 10%, but Gary can't deliver it. And with Hillary, I've got 0%. Right. So better to go with the 10% chance, knowing I'll probably be disappointed. So I think what we have to do is show them that we can actually bring about change. Yeah. And I think the way we do that is to set measurable goals that we can meet. One of them, although the press has done very little to give us credit for it, is the Sunday liquor sales. Sure. We've been fighting. That battle has been fought let me let me give a little background. So here in Indiana, we are not allowed to sell liquor on Sundays. <laughs> That's right. You heard me right. 
we have a lot of strange liquor laws left over from prohibition and so you can't get cold beer and walk it out of a, a you know liquor store or a big 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 box store you can't get in a liquor store but not a big box store that's the the argument but sunday sales passed today it's uh one of those issues that is very popular with the voter here in indiana because they look at it and they go well, this is an essential liberty that I should just have. Like, why would the government restrict me from buying beer on Sunday? That's stupid. And Arvin actually spoke at the Indiana convention and bashed, after Indiana passed a resolution calling for his resignation, bashed Indiana saying they don't believe in libertarianism because their main issue is not ending schools, not ending the government, despite Arvin having in our Indiana constitution the we have the common school fund so we have to have public schooling according to our constitution uh you know we can fight that in 50 years when we get to it but the voter cares about cold beer i mean on sunday sales arvin doesn't care about sunday sales he says that's uh, that is frivolous right you're 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 trying to take a teaspoon to the to the titanic and and save the ship in some ways i absolutely understand what he's saying and agree that we shouldn't be worried about Sunday sales as the main issue, but the voters' priorities are there, and we want to win elections. And I would also argue it has to do with our credibility, and it has to do with how people learn. As, as you mentioned, I taught for 23 years. Mm-hmm. And many libertarians, <clears throat> excuse me, as they exist in the party today, are top-down thinkers. They're like Einstein systems approach okay they come up with one idea and einstein happened to be right simple idea what does the light beam look like when i'm sitting on a a beam of light Mm -hmm. that one idea he built a world model around that turned out to be right well that was great but you know what most of us aren't going to be able to very successful at that what most libertarians have done in the past is they take that idea and then they build a whole worldview based around one idea. Currently, it's the NAP, non-aggression principle. And once they say, oh, this makes sense, and it does, then they define the entire world totally from that idea. And they break it down. How does it apply here? How does it apply there? You know, the same way that the Ten Commandments turned into, what is it, numbers? Right. Well, it's it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show, where it gives order to chaos. Right. And so that's the that's the order. That's the way that they're dealing with the chaos of the world in their mind. This axiom is the axiom that defines all, and so that's how I'm going to order the world. Because the idea of, well, maybe there's like ten different axioms. Right. <laughs> it's it's too intimidating. It's 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 right. very overwhelming. And the problem with that is not that it's even wrong. But that's not how most people think. Right. And I understand that because I was a libertarian before I was a teacher. And I had no trouble with that. And then I got into teaching and I found out, guess what? Most of the world doesn't think the way I do. And my telling them over and over and over again is not going to make them think that way. Most people learn from the bottom up. I always say, if you're a parent, you've given a kid a spoon. And as he sits in his high chair, he drops it. And you pick it up, and you give it to him, and he drops it. And this goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. Why? Because he's learning. 
Every time he drops it, he's doing an experiment. And as he does these experiments, he builds up the idea, whenever I drop things, they fall. He comes up with the general rule. He takes the individual ideas and comes up with a general rule. If you want to mess up a little kid's mind, blow bubbles. Because they go up. Right. Um, but that, that's how they learn. And that's how most people learn. So rather, in my opinion, than teaching them Newton's laws to explain what's happening, okay, or using the nap, you give them a little freedom here. And they go, oh, that makes life better. You find another place where they think they might be better off with freedom. You give them that. Oh, that made life better. Freedom here made life better. Less government here made life better. Less taxes here made life better. Each time that happens, a few of them are going to go, hmm, I seem to see a general rule forming here. That is the way I think the Libertarian Party should approach it. We should try to get our people in at the low level of government, which is where most people actually interact with government. Okay, sheriff is the wonderful job for it. Okay, prosecutor, but the only problem is libertarian and lawyer, libertarian running for office and libertarian lawyer is a good way to say basically your career's done. (laughs) Um, But at the low level, so that they say, okay, you put a libertarian in there, things tend to get better. Well, why? Well, they seem seem to keep government under control, make it smaller. Then we move up to the next level. And I think what we do is we find coalitions of people who have issues where they think, you know, I don't know what anything else, but I know on this, my life would be better. Yeah. You know, the farmers, if I could draw, if I could grow hemp. And I think libertarian party people, libertarians will do that. I mean, you're, you're uh, people who identify as libertarians that work at think tanks and magazines and, uh, you know, reason they, they, they point out those little incremental steps because they're nonpartisan. They're not looking like a Republican did this, you know, a Republican gave us tax cuts and look how much better the world is. A Libertarian Party person, I've often found, isn't willing to go, these tax cuts were good for these reasons because they don't want to give Republicans or Democrats the credit and say, this was a good thing that this happened. Because they often don't have the defense of, well, but didn't a Republican do that? Why don't you just become a Republican? I, and I, so I often think that libertarian party people would be better served if they just let go of the the insecurity that they're a third party because that insecurity is keeping them so tight around the idea of uh, of it's got to be this way because this is how it will, you know. Well, and I, I, I'm a libertarian. <clears throat> I'm a partisan. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm a libertarian party person. I think that eventually... The only way we'll make major changes is through the Libertarian Party. That doesn't mean we can't work with allies of interest. Um, The work being done now in medical marijuana is an excellent example. We can't, especially in Indiana, other states don't realize it, and this is where when I next meet with Arvin and we get into the school thing, uh, we're going to bring it up. Indiana, the only way you bring about fundamental change is you have to have a supermajority in both houses or a majority in both houses and the governorship. Mm-hmm. Because we have no right to referendum. We cannot initiate constitutional change. The only way any change can be brought about in this state is through the legislature. So unless you are sitting in the legislature 
or you have scared them enough, you can't accomplish anything here. So when Arvin says abolish public schools, my response is fine. How? The only way you can abolish public schools in Indiana, which, by the way, I'm not all that sure is even at the end that necessary, because if we just do the... um, uh, What's the Friedman Foundation called now? Uh, the Foundation for Educational Choice and the charter schools, vouchers, that's what they, they advocate for. Right. If you just do a voucher for every student, including homeschooled, and make it payable every two weeks, one of the big complaints schools have now is it's payable on a certain day. So people go to these private schools. On that day, they're counted in the private school. They get kicked out or they get banned at the private school. Or they go back to the public. The public's got to take them in, but they don't get any money for them. So how do you – you, you uh, brought up something that a lot of Libertarian Party members don't know how to answer, which is the reality of politics and government. I, I find that most people involved in the LP are very politically inexperienced and don't necessarily take the time to learn how politics works or how government works – and they cling to dogma instead, just like Arvin is doing with with that particular example. How do you get LP members to get engaged with politics to make actual change? Well, you have to do two things. One, you have to, I don't know the politically correct term nowadays, but basically grow a thicker skin. Okay, there's a nice little meme that shows the uh, good, fair, good witch from Wizard of Oz, right, and it says, are you a right-wing snowflake or a left-wing snowflake? <laughs> um, Arvin doesn't, I'm quite sure Arvin doesn't think I should be anywhere near any kind of leadership position in the LP. I am undoubtedly ritually unpure. Um, so what? So what? That doesn't affect me in any way. Okay. I think as much as I'm not happy with some of the things the caucuses are do- have done, I think the caucuses are probably what's going to save the LP. Hmm. When you go into the LP, join the LP, don't think of yourself necessarily as the LP. The LP is basically ballot access. Right. It's, a, it's, as we've said so often, an empty vessel. Political parties are empty vessels. Right. And that's the problem. The, the, most libertarians in the past have wanted to set it in stone. Okay? And I understand it, that the natural human... Th- Thing. They hate living on the slippery slope. But most people realize life is the slippery slope. Okay, If you're going to interact in the real world, you're always on the slippery slope. Mm-hmm. So go in, find your caucus. There's an anarchist, or a uh, radical caucus. If the radical caucus is too mild for you, there is an audacious caucus. <laughs> yes. There is a pragmatic caucus. There is a Mises caucus. There is a socialist libertarian caucus. Which is okay. Well, you have to understand. (laughs) um, You you have to really get into the weeds of history Uh to find out that is not as weird as it sounds. Right. Um, Again, voluntarism has not always been uh, collectivist. Right. By nature. And in fact, Indiana's first uh, state chair before I got involved was a anarcho-communist. Hmm. So it's nothing new to the party. It has just never been a major. Well, that was that that 
Common School Fund was put in by Robert Owen into the Indiana Constitution, and Robert Owen found a new harmony, or he, he didn't found new harmony, he inherited new harmony, he took it over, and they were basically anarcho-communists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Indiana has a long socialist history with uh, the Owenites. Right, and, I, and I've always argued that the most successful um, anarchist society has been the Amish. Um, the, they're also the reason I'm not an anarchist, because they can only exist if there are uh, non-anarchists out there to protect them from other non-anarchists. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, in me, my opinion, anarchy works when everyone's an anarchist. So what's your caucus? My caucus is the pragmatic caucus. I may actually end up starting one a little more pragmatic than the pragmatics. <laughs> um, I might call it the new coalition. And basically, I think the LP is the way to work. But if we get into an area where there's nobody that the LP could run and we've got somebody who's willing to run on a couple of agreed-upon issues, then I would have no trouble supporting them. I think that the problem with the LP is not the idea. It is we try to be too intellectual. Um, there's a book called, about, called The Second American Civil War. That talks about this. Talks about we're at a Jacksonian moment, and actually predicted Trump hmm. before Trump even occurred. And he talks about the most most Americans are organically libertarian, which is just basically leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. That's organic libertarianism. He absolutely hates the intellectual libertarian. Hmm. Um. Walter Williams, uh, at one time when we tried to recruit him, he's a professor of economics, right? Uh, tried to recruit him to run for president, said, when you guys stop uh, playing at political masturbation, I'll come over. But what does that mean? It means that we focus on ourselves and our own pleasures and what's important to us. You would not believe how much time is spent discussing cryptocurrency <laughs> among libertarians. Right. Now, it may turn out to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, but that's now voters are going to care about in 2018. People are just now figuring it out years down the road. Yeah. You know, I'm figuring it out, and I host a libertarian podcast with thousands of listeners. <laughs> right. So, Because it doesn't affect my daily life. You know, it's, it's not something that, a, you know, like a tax cut, I'm getting $60 every two weeks thanks to a tax cut. Right. I, can, I can see and feel that. Right. But Bitcoin, I can't see and feel and touch that. Right. And the libertarians can have an effect. When Rupert ran for governor, he was the one who brought up the training of technology as opposed to college. He was the one who brought up the effect felony convictions has on people. We didn't. He was the one who introduced the idea of being able to expunge your record. All three of those were were introduced and passed by Mike Pence and and Eric Holcomb, his his successor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because Rupert so, talked about those in the debates five years ago. Right. So the idea that the Libertarian Party can't have influence is just wrong. But we can have influence on things that make sense to most people, and we can give the rep- governing party either the impetus or the cover to make the reforms. The impetus, and they go, yeah, I've never thought about that. Or the cover in the sense that if I don't act on this, they're going to keep hitting me with this. Right. And eventually, even if they don't win, the other guy's going to win. 
And there's nothing more important than an, to an incumbent than being reelected. Right. So, although eventually I think libertarians will win, as soon as we start influencing the elections, we're going to be more important. And as soon as we can get, to me, a libertarian victory is 34%. 34% is a solid libertarian victory. Because in a three-way race, either you've won or you've come in second, which means you are now the opposition over one of the legacy parties, and you are helping to find debate. Yeah. You, you said you worked on the Johnson campaign. Um, yes. It's often criticized. Is yes. That, is that fair? Yes. It's, it's fair, but it's not the complete story. Johnson was not prepared for the amount of support he got. The organization was not prepared for the rate of growth it needed to do. And in my opinion, the leadership was still stuck in a Republican mindset. It was still st- stuck in the bring in the con- consultants, bring in the professional teams, go after the um, money right. people. They acted like the top echelon acted like Republicans. And a libertarian campaign is not simply a small Republican campaign. Yeah. We, we, we can never, for instance, get the money they, they can get because we can't make the offers they can get. You know, we can offer people protection from government, but we can't offer them the government as a way to beat up on their business opponents. Right. So as a result, the Republicans and the Democrats can always outbid us. We'll never win with num- with money. But one day every two years, the money doesn't matter. Because Suro or Koch, all of them, when they step in, they get one vote. Right. And when I step in, I get one vote. And my job is to get as many people that I know will vote Libertarian to the polls on that day. Yeah, I find that people are, uh, listen, the buying of democracy and the influence of corporations and politics and money in politics is staggering and overwhelming. But I do think that we get a little too hung up on it. You look at the like the NRA with Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio got a donation from the NRA because he was in agreement with their issues. Liberal candidates like Elizabeth Warren get donations from a pro-abortion group like Emily's List because they're in line with them. Show me the politician who had their mind, had their vote changed by a donation from the NRA on gun rights, and that's the problem. But you don't see a lot of that. You see, you see these activist groups donating money because they're, they're supporting politicians who already agree with them. Uh, but that money does only go so far. I mean, if you can really, you, you look at like uh, Bernie Sanders, they had to cheat to keep Bernie Sanders from winning. Ron Paul started a movement, even though he didn't win. Uh, did he win a primary? I don't remember. I don't think he, I think he got close in Iowa. Actually, they think that once they had a a clean count in Iowa, he won. Right. That's but- what it is. Okay. So if you can start a movement because your ideology, because there's a there's a touch of populism in libertarianism and if you can harness that 
and use that correctly, you you absolutely can win. And I I, f- I felt that Gary Johnson to me was unimpressive because he was unprepared in both campaign and in government. Bill Weld probably could have named five people that he would have put in a cabinet, but I don't know that Gary Johnson could, and I certainly know that all the other candidates couldn't have done that. You know, we we don't win. First, we focus too much on the presidency. Second, we don't win the presidency because we don't know who we would appoint as Treasury Secretary. Oh, well, Ron Paul. Well, Ron Paul's like 90, okay? (laughs) We do have to have some some strategy in future presidential campaigns because those are the races that people care about from a marketing perspective and you have to look more prepared than gary johnson really looked yeah get well the problem was and i like gary and again i still will say compared to the other candidates that we had to choose from there he, he was still the best he was the only choice yeah in my opinion he was still the best but when you get right down to it gary's a jock He's a good guy. He's basically a jock. He's got a jock's sense of humor. He's got a jock's, shall we say, lack of focus on non-physical right. things. Um, I still think he'd have been a better president than either of the other two running, even if he was a jock, because um, he's also smart enough to know his limitations. And I think between him and Bill Welds, they'd have put together a team that could have run the country at least as well as it's being run right now. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to have inexperience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we might as well have our guy in there. Um, but th- the only way you're going to get people to win like that is for people to be willing to come into the LP to put up with some of the verbal abuse. I've never seen anyone physically abused in the LP. Of course, yeah. Um, some of the visit, um, verbal abuse, you've got to learn to just say to, you know, ask me if I care, <laughs> you know, or do you really think your opinion has any effect on me? Right. Um, folks. And then these people go, oh, I'm mad. I'm either going to not be in politics. Well, fine. That guarantees that the worst people will run it. Or I'm going to go be a Republican. Well, do you really think that they're going to be any nicer to you? No, they're, they're, <laughs> I I became a libertarian because I saw them break election law to th- kick 300 Ron Paul people out of uh, delegate spots in Indiana in 2008. I mean, I saw them do it again in 2012. Yeah, my, my experience was basically um, for anyone with libertarian leanings or even moderate leanings in this state, your job is basically to shut up and open your checkbook. Right. Um, within the Republican Party. I've... The only time we I've known of any success, we did actually have, I believe, three Libertarian Party members elected as Republicans during the contract with America right. landslide. And funny thing, every one of those ended up like having their jobs move them out of state or <laughs> yeah. something like that happened. How do you – I see like five people on Facebook excited about the Libertarian Party, and I have a lot of Libertarians on my Facebook – and how do you get the conversation about the Libertarian Party to go from negative to positive? I think you do it by basically saying how important it is it is it to you. I'm a Libertarian... Define it. I'm a Libertarian Party activist not because of the Libertarian Party. It's because I care about my country. 
Um, now I've reached the point I don't care whether I'm called a sellout or a, you know, too moderate or weak. In fact, I really hope my uh, grandchildren's generation call me a sellout because that means that they've been raised in a free enough society to think that I didn't think it was free enough. Right. What I'm worried about is my grandchildren's generation looking at me like a monarchist, like someone who's who's lost in time. Oh, Grandpa <laughs> and his silly constitution. Isn't that quaint? Right. Okay. Because we've yeah. gone past the constitution right. and freedom. Right. Yeah. That's what I want. I want us to go to freedom, but I'm worried about us going the other way. Right. To the point where our ideas aren't even considered anymore. Our ideas, uh, I mean, even if you're a constitutional small R Republican, you, which I am, uh, you're v- wildly libertarian because <laughs> you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're an extremist. You look at the, the way that society looks at like Clarence Thomas or Neil Gorsuch, they're extremists. Rand Paul is nuts oh, because they believe in the founding document of, of the government. The hilarious thing about what I find and is the fact that taking a rational libertarian position the same way I did when I was in my 20s um, now makes me a moderate. Hmm. Okay? I'm no longer considered the crazy one in the room. As long as I don't do an Arvin, okay? <laughs> Start talking about crisis actors. Yeah. I mean, as uh, yeah, I, we won't talk about no, that. But that yeah. is a great point. I mean, I make libertarian arguments that I've made for 10 years. And 10 years ago, I was nutty. I was insane 10 years ago. And now people look at me like I'm a centrist. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I would argue libertarians can be centrists in the sense that we want less government, but we're not wedded to the economic, you know, we go back to gold. Okay. Right. Um, Nor are we social conservatives. We're not social conservatives. You know, we are not um, social Darwinians. Well, some of us are, but I'm not. Okay. I don't believe that our role models should be Ebenezer Scrooge before the visits of the ghosts. You know, the libertarian answer to welfare should not be, then let them die and decrease the surplus population. (laughs) Um, No Malthusian nightmare on your your, uh, platform, is there? That... (laughs) There is so much more that we could dismantle first. See, most libertarians come across as, what's that game where you pull out the beams to? Uh, Tiddlywinks. No, okay, know. you know yeah, what I'm talking about. I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, there's yeah. a game. Oh, Jenga. Jenga. Yes. Okay. Most libertarians think that the way to play Jenga is you knock the whole thing down and say, I win. <laughs> Okay, I believe you have to play it like Jenga. And when it comes to which bar I'm going to pull out, I'm sorry. Aid to children, okay, is one of the last bars. It's not one of the first. I've seen, now that I've, I mean, I live in Zionsville. I live in the bubble. Okay, and my kids would complain, students would complain, you know, it's so boring here. I said, of course it is. Your parents paid a lot of money. To get you in a place that's boring. <laughs> um, you know, they want to go out. To, I say, I want to go in the real world. I said, no, you don't. Your parents were there. That's why they brought you here. Um, but I've, especially since I've retired, I've spent more time with people on the other half 
of the economic scale. Mm-hmm. And it's not that the, most of them are lazy. In fact, I've met very few lazy people. Right. Okay. It is that they are living from day to day. Yeah. Okay. It's no longer for most of the lower middle class a case of having your head above water. It's a case about having the water up to the top of your forehead and bouncing up and now and then to get a breath. Yeah. I forget who it was that it said that uh, the, the way to describe the American uh, economic system in 2018 is that the lower class is drowning and the middle class is the one with the water up to their eyeballs. I mean, basically that everybody's treading water except for that upper to, you know. Right. And, and I find that to be uh, true in a lot of my peers, at least in the millennial generation, probably not so much for your peers and the boomers, but, you know, $30,000 in a job when you're 33 is kind of standard. I mean, you're, you're lucky to be making that, you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of economic humility, especially in the, in the millennial generation. No, the economy has definitely changed. And this is where I'm Probably the, again, the radical. I am a populist in the sense that if I truly didn't believe that everyone would be better off, not just the smart people. Yeah, libertarians tend to be smart and they tend to be smug about it. But you know what? Unless you are a person who just likes putting their face in front of the iron fist, a smart person can survive in most systems. Mm Mm-hmm. The people in Zionsville are not, in my opinion, although I hope as many come to libertarianism as they can, the real people who benefit from us because they can work in any system. They will survive if they have to wear Mao jackets. They'll survive if they have to wear armbands. They'll survive in our system. They'll survive in an anarchic system. They're that good. Okay? That's not why I'm a libertarian. Okay, I'm a libertarian because I really think that every person is a better judge of how to live their lives than someone else. Will I agree with them? Probably not. But that's not my job. And that's why I'm a libertarian. It's for everyone. It's not just for the elite. You know, it, it really shook me up when I met a young woman uh, a couple of years ago who joined the party. And she says, well, I, I like this stuff, but I thought you were all just a bunch of angry old white guys. And I'm going, damn. So that's what all those angry young young white guys turned into. Yeah. A bunch of angry, you know, that's not what we're about. That's not what we should be about. No, and that, that's really what I try to, to preach here, for lack of a better term. We, it's not that we're not social conservatives, right? It's that you have to, you have to have some level of virtue, some level of dude, you know, things like duty truth uh empathy for your fellow man service has to be important you have to have values to have a libertarian society because it isn't the it isn't the ayn rand version of the virtue of selfishness like that's not what libertarianism is about ultimately libertarianism is very altruistic because yes the the government forces people into arguments where we get a, a program on CNN where people are are yelling at each other and it feels awful and it's the two minutes of hate and and that's what government ultimately leads society towards and it be, makes it worse. A libertarian society is much more giving 
And I think you've seen things like churches and my grandfather was in the Odd Fellows and the Masons and you know he he had to go to the Moose Lodges because it helped his business but also he wanted to give back to his community. And those the Shriners started all these hospitals, Carnegie starts all these libraries. I mean, capitalism and libertarianism and freedom give us these better social programs than what we're getting now. Absolutely. And, you know, can you live a uh, Randian, you know, let them die and decrease the surplus population in a libertarian society? Yes, you can. And it'll be a very sad life. Yeah. Because it's one of those strange things. Life feels better when you help people. Yeah. And that's totally illogical and it's totally counterintuitive. But the best theory in the world doesn't work out when you uh, doesn't hold up to an experiment. And the experiment is go do something for somebody where they can't do anything back for you, and you'll be amazed on how good you feel. Well, you also you have to be altruistic. You have to be giving because at some point it's your turn in the barrel, and you're going to need people. And uh, I think that you can you can turn if you have to be selfish look at it that way you know like oh yeah you, you want to go out and be a good person and help people so you have people to help you get along if you must be selfish at least look at it that way again the the only thing that libertarianism says is you're going to be able to fulfill those needs better in a free society than you will in a regulated society because where one thing we all agree on is government misallocates resources. Right. Because if they would have gone there naturally, there would have been no need for government to do it. Yeah. You know, are there a few possible exceptions? Yeah, maybe. You know, we'll find out. Maybe we do need government to build roads. I really don't care when I'm still fighting about whether or not, now that we will have Sunday liquor sales, whether I can get cold <laughs> beer on a Saturday yeah. or a Sunday. I mean... I, that's what I would all, you know, do I think that the best path to take is the one that Portugal has taken and Norway has now taken uh, to legalize all drugs and treat drug abuse as a medical condition? Yes, I do. But if I can't buy cold liquor on Sunday, I am not going to be pushing for the legalization of all drugs. Okay. <laughs> and that is where I disagree with. The radicals in the party. Meaning you want to get society, get the population comfortable with this. And and I saw this great meme that we posted somewhere. Uh, I post too much now. It was basically uh, put, put uh, you know, put your kid in kindergarten, make them legally in charge of teaching your kids to tie their shoes. And within a generation, we'll all think that the government must teach your children how to tie their shoes or else they'll never yeah. be able to do it. And that is, that's so much like, oh, it just perfectly illustrates where we're at. Like in, in these gun debates, you see uh, we're going and fighting for our rights and we need them to. It's like your first mistake was thinking that they're daddy. Yeah. <laughs> your first mistake is giving them that power and not realizing that you just inherently have the power, which is what natural rights are about, which is what the Second Amendment is about, and then we end up teaching you that uh, you're lobbying for stupid things. But yeah, I'm not. Again, I'm a, Murray Rothbard once called people like me uh, envelope stuffers. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm interested in politics. Right. Um, 
I'm 64 years old. I became a libertarian when I was 22. I have argued about how many private roads you can build on a head of a pin for so many years. It doesn't even interest me anymore. Right. I'm not, I don't care where your freedom comes from. I don't care if it comes from God, if it comes from innate rights, if it comes from property rights. I think you have rights. I'm worried about liberty, your ability to exercise those rights. Government is the one that restricts liberty. It restricts your ability to exercise your rights. I want to cut back on those restrictions. Now, the anarchists believe that the best is all restrictions of government off. I'm not convinced, okay? I can picture a world where I would rather have a little bit of government control than a lot of gang control. Right. You know, um, it's sort of like friction uh, as a physics teacher, so you can't take it out of me. Um, if you want something to get less friction, you make it smoother and smoother. But there's actually a point that if you get things too smooth, friction increases. Hmm. Because it is so smooth, now you're getting molecular attraction between the molecules and not just the irregularities on the surface. So there's a, I, it's like limit theory. You know, my personal opinion, it's like you're approaching zero and we'll never reach it. You can keep cutting it in a half, cutting it in a half, cutting it in a half. You'll never quite get there. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't care. But we're so far away from there. Why in God's name are we fighting about the last 5%, okay, when we're going, you know, at breakneck speed away from freedom? Okay, anyone, in my opinion who wants to cut back government, and we may not always get to our pet project. You know, it might be, might be my personal one of them would be to end the drug wars. Okay? But it may be we're going to end the war in Syria first. Fine. I can live with that. Okay? And then when we end, get that done, we'll put some of those resources into ending the drug war. The key is to always move that other direction. As long as we can get people to do that, then we have hope. Seems like a good place to stop. Uh, final thoughts, anything that you'd like to share, shamelessly self-promote, anything you forgot to say? The self-promotion is only that if you're a delegate to the uh, New Orleans Convention, please consider me. Uh, the way our voting goes, um, you have to have 50% plus one to win, and NOTA, none of the above, is always a choice. And after each ballot, the candidate with the least number of votes will be dropped. And so it'll eventually get down to two candidates plus NOTA, or possibly, as has happened in the past, one candidate plus NOTA. And if you really don't like any of us uh, and NOTA wins, then none of us can run that convention and the floor is open to new people. Um, so keep me in mind, if not as your first choice, maybe as your second or your third, and for those of you who are considering the Libertarian Party, please come in and realize there are rude people everywhere. We have some here. You'll find them in the Republicans. You'll find them in the Democrats. But if you really want to improve our country, if you really want freedom, I really think you should look into the Libertarian Party. All right. Thanks so much, Joe, for joining us. Joe Houtman. Uh, you can find him on Facebook. Uh, Adam there. 
And uh, I want to thank Christy Avery, Jason Doolittle, Brandon Luke, and Craig DaCosta for uh, being our $100 a month subscribers on Patreon. You can join our Patreon, $5, $25, $10, $100, and uh, that really helps out you you guys, you Patreon subscribers, along with Craig DaCosta, Nick Economopoulos, uh, Joey Turner, and Christy Avery are helping fund my trip to Liberty Con, the Students for Liberty Conference, next weekend. So in roughly 10 days, I will be in Washington, D.C. If you're going to Liberty Con, let's meet up. Let me know. Uh, send me a note and say, hey, I'm in Washington, D.C. too. I'd love to meet you if you listen to the program. Excuse me. I had a hiccup. Uh, then, yeah. So drop me a note. My hiccup threw me off. I was doing so well. So uh, I want to thank Joe for being my guest. Very thoughtful conversation. Really appreciate it. If you enjoy the thoughtful conversation that we have here, if you at one point during this show went, man, I really uh, never looked at it that way, please share it with your friends on Facebook. If you, if you don't want to become a subscriber, just share it with a friend. Help us grow. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.